I get bored too quickly. And I always want to do something that's bigger and better than the last thing that I've done. I've always found over the years, it's better to be at the forefront of things rather than someone who's coming along behind and copying. It's always, at least in my opinion, easier to be the leading edge. Hello, and welcome to Zebra Talk. My name is Matt Mayer, and I'm your host. I'm in conversation today with Mark Preston. In a career which started in Australian motorsport and has included founding a Formula One team, investing heavily in autonomous vehicles and being a founding father of Formula E, Mark Preston has a unique insight into an industry that you wouldn't immediately associate with tackling some of the world's environmental challenges head on. Mark is now race team principal at Formula E team DS Tachita. And in conversation, we tackle some interesting issues ranging from approaches to innovation, persevering in the face of skepticism about the crazy idea of bringing electric power to motorsport, and how mainstream manufacturers are now endorsing clean technology. We also talk about DS to Cheetah as a good business, and in particular, the support that the race team gives to the Big Cat Sanctuary. Mark, welcome to Zebra Talk. Absolutely fantastic to have you on board for a conversation today. And it's a topic that I'm really interested to hear about. Um, anything sporting always has great resonance with our listeners, and in particular because of the lessons and the analogies that we can draw from other organizations and industries like sport and apply them into business. So great to have you here today and thanks for, for sharing your your story with us. And I thought that would be a good place to start really, just your, your personal story. I mean, you've had a, a, a really fascinating career from what I can understand, moving you know from originally being in Australia, a country that we associate with V8 cars um, and, and fuel consumption and noise and all of those things that you know, become slightly challenging um, around some of the sustainability agendas that we talk about on the podcast into Formula One and then into Formula E and also your your involvement in some um, other automotive businesses, particularly around autonomous vehicles with Street Drone and other projects you're involved in. It'd be great just to, to learn a little bit more about that journey and uh, some of the experiences that you've had along the way. Yeah, great to join you guys today. Um, yeah, I started in uh, Australia, gosh, at least um, 23 years ago. Um, I came over in 1996 to work in Formula One, actually. When I was in Australia, I actually worked for GM Holden, which is part of the GM group over there. That's changing quite a bit at the current time. Um, I came over specifically to do Formula One. I joined um, Arrows Grand Prix when Tom Walkinshaw bought that at the time. Um, I started as a stress engineer, which is someone who works out how strong things are. So I come from an engineering background. And I worked my way up to doing simulation, simulation of vehicles, performance, and then running the test team. And getting involved at the more involved at the racetrack sadly um that finished when uh back in 2002 um the company shut down as arrows grand prix but then i was able to move to mclaren where i spent the next 10 two years working with people like adrian newey who's a quite a famous designer in formula one we did some very interesting uh things there on some of the cars that one of the cars that didn't actually race actually which is another interesting story in itself with the mp418a um, after that i decided to go and do an mba and do something else i'd been thinking about which is could i start a formula one team myself uh, i headed off down that track with a few colleagues that had come from arrows and eventually that all came together as super aguri formula one team with honda and aguri suzuki so we all joined together and created a uh, Formula One team in only 100 days. So that was a pretty amazing experience as we got to start 
a Formula One team in 100 days. That was when I ended up as technical director there. So again, I looked over everything to do with um, technology, um, the drivers racing and traveling around the world, obviously, uh, doing that kind of thing. Um, we Sadly, that had also run into trouble because of the financial crash. Uh, there was a lot of car companies that pulled out at the time, Honda, Toyota, Bridgestone, a lot of the other big Japanese companies. And um, I went off and actually started a composites company. So from my experience previously in Formula One, we, we created a composites company for the next six years or so where I, I ran that. And then um, along that period, I was helping with some spin-out companies out of Oxford University, which were related to electric motors and uh, tidal energy turbines. And that's when I really got in, involved in EVs. And so that was back in about 2008. Uh, pretty soon after that, um, a uh, friend of ours who was the brother of James Hunt, the uh, famous Formula One driver, David Hunt, came along and said, I think we could do something to do with electric race cars. And that got us interested in electric race cars back in 2009. Gosh, that seems like a long time ago now. And from that point on, uh, we started to pivot, I suppose, would be the thing from petrol-powered motorsport into electric, autonomous, connected, shared, and now we're seeing clean. So that's the you know the, the philosophy we started to go towards. So over the next few years, we got involved in the FIA when they did the pitches for uh, the tender process for the first electric race car. When Alejandro Agag started Formula E, we uh, approached him to start a team, which we did. Uh, eventually, we were the sixth team at the time. So I was one of the founding team principals of Formula E. We ran a team called um, Aguri at the time. So again, we took our heritage from what we did in Formula One and, and we started off as Aguri. And then over the next few years, we uh, pivoted and became uh, eventually ended up as Tachita, which um, is the current team that I run. And we'll be racing in a couple of weeks' time in Berlin, which will be interesting. Uh, where we're still leading the championship this year as we go into the last few races. We are leading the drivers and the team's championship. We won those both championships last year, and the previous year we won the drivers' championship. So we're having a good time in Formula E, and it's a really interesting place to be. So that's it in a nutshell. Perfect. And I think I hadn't realized that the Formula E series was coming back so quickly. So that's excellent news. I shall look out for that. Uh... That Berlin race. Uh, you sort of casually dropped into your history that you had decided to start a Formula One team um, and then decided to, to, to be a founder and start a Formula E team. I mean, those are both fairly ambitious undertakings. This is the art of British understatement there. I mean, they are they are big undertakings. And I'm, I'm interested in what drives you as an individual to take those big gambles, to place those big bets. I suppose um, I get bored too quickly. And I always want to do something that's bigger and better than the last thing that I've done, I've always found over the years, it's better to be at the forefront of things rather than someone who's coming along behind and copying. It's always, at least in my opinion, uh, easier to be um, the leading edge. So um, starting a Formula One team, okay, that's just something that hadn't been done for a while and something that I'd, I'd been really interested in doing. I'd had my own race teams in Australia as well. And so starting something bigger and harder and more difficult than anybody else is always a you know something that's a, a good challenge with Formula E it seemed like that I mean this, this I've said this a few times that Formula One got slightly 
the wrong word is probably boring, but um, we knew what we had to achieve. We knew what we were trying to do. The rules were pretty stable. Uh, we all knew what kind of engines we had, you know, what what we had to achieve in aerodynamics and weight and those kind of things. And doing something as, you know, out of the box as electric racing cars, if anyone saw the original Top Gear show way back when they had the car driving around Oxford that was made with a generator and, you know, lashed together with bits and pieces and uh, electric cars were just seen as milk floats. To go and prove everybody wrong, to work with Alejandro and all the other teams to show that something in motor racing that um, had never been tried before and, and everyone thought couldn't be done, um, could be done, was an exciting journey that um, I was well up for. So I do like exciting journeys. I think we've discussed before the next one for me is autonomy. And that's one of the areas that I'm also interested in because that's the, the next stage I see in, in the development of transportation and, and mobility. I mean, lots of our listeners are involved, you know, perhaps not on the same scale as, as launching the sort of teams that you've launched, but are involved in launching initiatives and projects and, and businesses which are being deployed into just challenging or sceptical environments. And you talked a little bit a moment ago about being driven by proving people wrong. And I just wondered how how important that was as a personal motivator. And, and I'm guessing that in 2009, electric race cars was pretty out there as an idea how hard did you have to work to prove people wrong i mean when we when formula e started and we started to talk to people about joining us in formula e they really thought we were crazy it's really hard to describe when you make a phone call to someone who is currently in formula one who basically says don't call me again because this is nuts you know i don't believe you to now we've got you know eight to ten manufacturers in the series People like Porsche, Mercedes, BMW, Jaguar, everybody's in the series. I mean, it's nice now to be proved, I don't know if the right word is proved right. Um, obviously, the world's been changing with us as we've been going along. And there's been some big mega trends that have obviously helped from redevelop, which is obviously great. Um, I just find the challenge when nobody thinks you're right is um, it's just really interesting. Uh, the, just following the status quo doesn't have really any challenge in it. So I think doing something, uh, what's that thing? That, you know, if everybody says you're right, it's probably wrong. You know, when someone does a startup and everyone says, yeah, you're 100% right, and everyone says you're 100% right, then you're probably on the wrong track. If 50% of the people think you're crazy and 50% of the people think that you might have a good idea and maybe 10% um, think you're, it's amazing, then you might be in the right place. I think that's the, the motto that I um, have learned over the years. Yeah, I like, I like that idea of negative validation. Yes. <laughs> I'm, going to go, go, I'm going to go and explore that. <laughs> and, and thinking about autonomous vehicles and your, your work with street train, I mean, I guess for many people, that's still quite out there. That's still quite crazy in terms of use case. Does that, has that got the same feel about it as Formula E did in, in 2009? Yeah, I think it does. There's, there's been a lot of rethinking going on in uh, autonomous vehicles because of COVID-19. Obviously, we've, we've all experienced having deliveries, and um, I've certainly, we get deliveries every day from Amazon, which is obviously um, good and bad, I suppose. Um, we can see that everybody's getting used to it, and that is potentially one of those changes that might stay with us. So there's been, a, I suppose, a rethink that's coming, I believe, where everyone's suddenly realizing, well, maybe autonomous vehicles are right in that low-speed delivery logistics environment, because you don't have to take a person, you don't have to worry about people complaining as the, the car maybe stops and starts and 
doesn't do all of the most perfect things. So I think COVID-19 is actually driving that change. So again, it's been good to be involved maybe three or four years ago getting started. And now the world is maybe coming to us again as we start to focus in and narrow down on where autonomy seems to be the best um, for the future. So it may just be that, that electric and autonomous as two separate themes are coming together and now is their moment. Yeah, and I think some of the big car companies, they they talk a lot about autonomous, electric, connected and shared. Now, shared is probably a little bit difficult at the moment, obviously, with COVID-19, and that probably slows down the shared element of it. And there's a lot of discussion, obviously, at the moment about going in the underground or how do people travel? That's in London, obviously, where we're all based. We're starting to add maybe one more element to that, I think, from Formula E, which is the clean element. I think... I've given a few presentations recently where people have asked me to talk about what's the biggest impact I see that coming out of this um, COVID-19 period. And I think if you take a photo of, you know, the classic things like a, there's some photos of the big gate in New Delhi, I think it is that you couldn't see the, the mountains behind, but now you can at the moment. When that goes back to being smoggy and dirty again, people will say, do you remember when we had COVID-19 and you could see the, the mountains or the the background, I think clean air, people have had an example and something to point at now and to say that's possible. We could achieve that. I think sometimes when you know you can achieve something, then maybe we have to have stretch goals next. Then what can we do beyond that? Um, so I think clean is another element to it that certainly Formula E and um, the upcoming thing, actually extremely to add another thing to this this discussion, which is the um, off-road version of uh, of Formula E, which is coming next. It's going to come in the next few years. So that's going to go around the world and highlight some of the most damaged areas in the world. So there's there's more still to come, really, in this whole electric racing, clean air um, world. Yeah, it's fascinating thinking about how sport and the following that sport brings can be used to progress some of these, these agendas and, and to showcase you know, both problems but also solutions. Just thinking about Formula E in particular at the moment, you know, what 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 is the role of Formula E in in the motor industry generally, and, and where does it sit in the motorsport hierarchy? I've always seen motorsport sitting on a scale. If you know the uh, NASA technology readiness levels, which go from blue sky research to something that's fully commercialized, I always felt that motorsport sits in the middle. It's kind of a technology demonstrator. Um, it demonstrates the technology, but it also allows the early adopters. So people like me that are very early adopters to uh, showcase the technology, mature the technology, go and check out the bugs. We can take more risk in motorsport. So if we try a new, let's pick something technical in a, in a race car, an inverter or something like that, where we experiment with uh, maybe a gearbox or a, a different element of the electric powertrain, if we get it wrong, we can change it. But if you're in a road car situation and you're designing five years in advance, and your model uh, cycle might be five to seven years, it's really difficult, you can't get too much wrong. So the great thing about motorsports is you can try and experiment and validate and check, and if it all looks like it's working correctly, then it helps to not only show the public or the, the buying public what the future might be, it also shows confidence, allows get confidence because it works in racing, so it should work in a road car. And then as the car companies bring out their technology, then um, people can say, well, it worked in, in racing, so it's not crazy. Uh, we've seen it com competing with the big car companies competing against each other. 
So it helps to sell new concepts. So that's how we see that you know, motorsport can help in, in, in the real world. And I think, you know, certainly in terms of, of statement of intent, we were clearly seeing the car companies in, in recent months, not, not just during the pandemic, but certainly during the last 12 months, coming out in a fairly committed way um, to certainly to electric vehicles um, and hybrid vehicles. Are you expecting to see an, an acceleration of that? And, that and, and will that change the relationship between those car companies and, uh, and race teams? Yeah, I think so. I mean, myself, having been involved in electric cars now for a while, in our autonomous car company, we've had some of the small Renault Twizzies, you know, the little electric vehicles, and we've got some Nissan vans, which we've used for doing R&D. I'm about to receive my first, I'll call it, um, it sounds terrible, proper EV from DS, the DS3, which is um, a small crossback SUV. I would say that and things like the I-Pace, Jaguar I-Pace, the Audis, the Mercedes, there's a big flood of those vehicles now coming into the market. And I think they're the first, it's maybe bad to say that to some people have already got electric vehicles, but there's this big um, onslaught, as you say, of, of new models, which give you choice, give you different ranges, give you different options to styling and, you know, all the kind of things that are normally useful um, for selling cars. So I think there's a big uptick in that area coming over these this next year and has formula e got room for some more manufacturers to join that party not all teams have a manufacturer behind them we've currently got ds behind them which is part of the psa group um there's a couple of teams that still run customer powertrains so yes there are there is some room for some more uh, car manufacturers i think one of the things that that many of our listeners are involved in is is innovation in the broadest sense of their business and one of the, the debates that we've had in some of the other talks and had a really interesting conversation with Will Butler-Adams, who's the chief exec of Brompton Bikes, we were talking about the difference between innovation in the end product and innovation in the in the process. Mm. And I know that we've talked before this recording about the role of um, process uniqueness and uh, versus ultimate innovation. How do you see good organisations approaching innovation? Should they be looking at the end product or should they be starting with innovation in their process? Gosh, that's an interesting uh, question. I mean, in motor racing, we're always trying to innovate. We've got an, an easy way of telling if we've been successful because we can go faster than somebody else and, and win, obviously. So our innovation becomes easier to validate and, and test against the questions. Certainly, I found that in F1, process innovation became, or probably still is, um, a big part of it. So getting better and quicker and more certain about the the aerodynamic development, for example, or better and more certain about developing it, powertrains, engines, and those kind of things. So innovation can come quite fast. The good thing about motorsports is we're very willing to take risk. And I think that's one of the areas that I've seen the most. When I've been asked to speak at some different industries, they've kind of said, how do you guys go so fast to innovation? And I think a lot of it comes down to how much risk we're willing to take. So there's a couple of sort of good anecdotes that I've come across over the years. I had a boss once upon a time who said, how come nothing's failed this year before the new car launch? And we said, oh, because we're doing a good job. And he said, well, it must be overweight then, mustn't it? And then the following year, <laughs> we go a little bit too far and too many things are failing. And he's like, why are we going so far? On things and we said well you know you wanted to see how close we were to the edge and he's like, okay now you're going a bit too far over the edge too many things are failing but there's a kind of fine balance between 
getting to knowing that you are, I suppose, going far enough and taking enough risk and, and taking too much risk that you don't even finish the race. So, you know, in motor racing, they always say that the, the to finish first, you first have to finish. So there's a there's a really fine line between failing um, enough to get performance and sort of fail fast, fail often. I do believe that that's um, quite a good saying you can take from Silicon Valley and apply or certainly happens in, in motor racing. So the, the nice balance between failure and risk is really important. And then I think another area is freedom to think. So there was something we saw from 3M. They had the 20% rule where, you know, you at 3M, and I think Google might use this as well, where people are allowed to use 20% of their time to think freely about ideas. So not be blamed or, you know, you've got to be able to think openly and not people don't think you're crazy. So the, the classic brainstorming problem of, um, people saying, well, that won't work. You know, you've got to be allowed to take it a little bit further to see where it could go. Um, so that, that's where I find is uh, useful in, in motorsports. We can explore different directions and um, not be afraid to take some risks. Yeah, and I think that's, it's interesting because obviously that's the industry that you've always been involved in. And I think in other industries, there's a there's a perception that perhaps where there's a, a strong focus on health and safety or regulation or very tight parameters even if those are set internally it's it's difficult to to take risk and innovate and fail but actually the the story you're telling is is a different one which is that there are clear parameters but there's still an ability to take that innovative approach i think also the the rate at which we we got processes and procedures in order to test the the products before they go to the racetrack the ultimate consequence of some types of failures on the racetrack can be fairly catastrophic, so a piece of suspension failing or something like that. So over the years, we've developed processes and procedures to allow us to test more rigorously um, in the laboratory. So to know that we're very, very close to the limit and it will, you're very, very certain of that part um, on the racetrack. So we've got better and better processes to make that, to validate those things. I think maybe in the old days, back in the 60s and 70s, things were a little bit more hit and miss. And that's why there was more more crashes and, and those things. So we've got better at validating things before they go to the racetrack, but there's still things go wrong in software and, and other areas uh, where the calculations go wrong and, and maybe we don't win because we've made a mistake in the software. That's got less ramifications from a safety point of view, but a lot of ramifications for not winning. So there is probably, we've probably segmented the risk a bit more. We obviously also test on the test track where if you are worried about a certain thing, you could test in a different type of track where you know that if something goes wrong, the driver will be safe. So maybe it's got a, you test in a track that's got big, long runoff areas when you're doing something that might be more structurally, um, so it could cause a problem structurally, uh, although you hope that, that never happens on the track, instead of testing in a place where you've got walls everywhere, which is obviously another, another dangerous uh, area. So. Yeah, we still take a lot of risk, I think. Maybe not as much as that was done in the, in the very old days, the 60s and 70s, but still a lot of risk taken compared to um, some of the organizations that are obviously putting things in commercial operation that maybe have to stay in play for 10, 20, 30 years, which they can't have faults over those 10, 20, 30 years, whereas our race cars are mollycoddled, let's say. You know, they go out on a run, they come in, there's six mechanics come onto the car there's engineers checking it so we can also run closer to the edge by monitoring it so carefully with um, a whole lot of engineers behind the scenes 
And I guess, you know, one of the things that comes out of what you were saying there was just the, the team effort that's involved. Um, it's certainly, certainly our experience talking to other business leaders is that getting that team right, getting that team dynamic right, and the, the sense of mission and, and role that each person has within the team is key. You're obviously a team principal. How at Tachita do you approach building and, and running a team with such complexity and so many different types of skills in them? I suppose one of the interesting questions we get asked a lot at the moment is what's the secret to winning? So what are you different doing differently than others? And I, I really don't believe there's ever been a secret bullet. I don't think there's you know one magic bullet in how to succeed. I do believe it's a package. So communication always talks, turns out to be one of the top things that goes wrong. Um, everybody talking to each other, uh, a place to not get blamed. So I think it's really important to see a problem be able to say it to the organization, but not get blamed for it. And instead of just blame a blame culture, get involved in um, solving the problem. So I believe that's pretty important. So you can actually find problems early and nobody's scared to, to say something. I think it's also a package of, in, in motor racing, it's, it's, it's everything. It's having a good powertrain from DS, it's having great drivers, it's having engineers that are creative, it's having mechanics who have practiced and very good at their job at the track, getting things out if there's a problem. Uh, if the driver has a crash, nobody blames anybody. They just get on with sorting it out and knowing that they're pushing to the very limit because everybody else is pushing to the limit. So the people behind the scenes that are um, working, just making payments and making sure that you know the flights get booked and all those elements so that the whole thing flows. With regard to teamwork and how you know something's going well, I find the idea of flow over a weekend sort of in a flow state people talk about in sports where nothing's going wrong and everything's going to plan. Often that's the weekend you have your most success. The weekends where everything's going wrong and everyone's in a panic, usually it means that you're probably not going to win unless everyone else is doing a bad job as well. But uh, the weekends where you go and everything feels like it's all coming together, that's normally the weekends where you're, you're successful. Interesting. It's a kind of call to action for good scenario planning, good mapping of possible eventualities and focusing on stopping things going wrong rather than um, obsessing about things going right. Some good lessons in life and business there, I think. I'm interested in this is a, I, mean, I guess this is a personal question, but you've grown up in an industry that's not always been um, associated with the, the best sustainability credentials or impact on the world. Um yeah, less so now, but I think certainly as you were, you were coming through the core of your career, and, and clearly, from what I know of of you and the work you're doing now, you you definitely fall into the category of being an advocate for good business. And we've talked about the environment and clean air and the impact things can have. How have you managed to balance having those strong personal views and beliefs, and, and working in an industry where, um, you know, perhaps you're railing against some of the norms, some of the some of the things that are that are embedded in those industries? How have you balanced that? Yeah, obviously, when I grew up, uh, we didn't think about those things when we had V8s in Australia. So it was just more fuel, more power, more fuel, faster. Um, and it's only since I got involved in the spin out of the electric motor company out of Oxford and, and also the tidal energy turbine company, where I started to get involved more in uh, sustainability and, and those elements. I actually did do that very early on in my career at university. We did do a subject on it, but I got sort of caught up in the what the world of motorsports uh, and, and cars actually was like. I think over the last years, obviously, CO2 has become more important. I look after a charity with my family in, in Africa, so we've been and seen a lot of the 
the impacts of uh, some of the climate change there and obviously being in Australia at Christmas where we drove up through the middle of uh, the New South Wales and Victoria to Sydney and back down again for New Year's and saw all of the bushfires or at least the um, the smoke and everything from those fires and obviously a lot of our family knows quite a lot about what goes on in bushfires and, and those areas and it just feels like you know we have to do something important for the world and, and some of the things that we're doing in the background we're called Tachita and we have a relationship with the Big Cat Sanctuary down in Kent where we try to help to support the cheetah population in the world and support uh, they're, they're one of the uh, animals that's endangered in the world. And that's something that matches, obviously, the race team. So it matches quite easily, being cheetahs. And each driver has a cheetah assigned to them. And as you'll see on our social media, that the drivers have been down there and met their cheetahs that have their names on the car. We do a lot of combined social media before the races where we obviously work closely with uh, the Big Cat Sanctuary and we try to do many fundraising events where the drivers and, and the team uh, go down to go down to see them and sometimes we have some events at the racetrack i i want to do more if we can uh, you know evs are zero emission at point of use so they're good in cities for clean air but we also have to make sure that the energy that goes into those cars is renewable as well otherwise we don't truly finish the total life cycle so that's another area where we're pushing quite hard as to how we can make the full life cycle obviously better, including manufacturing, because there is some you know people that talk about the batteries are obviously quite energy intensive, and that's important to have renewable energy and other aspects behind that. So the great thing is in, in Formula E, I'm finding that everything is matching. So the whole idea of clean air matches well with obviously cleaning the planet, uh, where we're looking now at you know, where we could get involved in things like tree planting and other carbon offsets. The FIA, which is the governing body of Formula One and, and Formula E, has put together an accreditation process where they're, they're encouraging teams to effectively have an environmental plan, which we're working through with them. And it's part of the requirements for entering actually next year's championship is to have a an environmental plan behind the scenes. So all of those elements that come together, I think probably the best sort of anecdotal story on this is that one of my engineers is also similar age to myself uh, near 50 and um, he said for the first time in my motorsports career I, I can actually hold my head up high and say to my kids that I'm doing something for the environment at least we're at the at the cutting edge of it so it's nice having worked in automotive and motorsport for so many years to be trying to lead the charge for pioneering change I think is probably the, the good good uh, way to put it. And I think that there's there's such a need for good role modeling in different industries. Um, and, you know, one of the things that impresses me is is not just at a personal level with yourself, but with the, the team as a whole and the Tachita team, that, that actually it, it provides a role model and that, that inspires people, um, irrespective of what the direct impact is. And that's that's so important. And you, you talked about social media, the, the relationship with the, the Big Cat Sanctuary, and all of those things come together to create an audience for that that role modeling. Yes. Yeah, so hopefully we can do more in this next coming races. I, I'd commend our listeners to to go onto YouTube and have a look for the the video of one of your cars racing against a, a cheetah in the Western Cape because uh, that's that's certainly impressive and brings brings all of those uh, those thoughts about um, you know the, the the relationship between man and technology and nature together for me when I watched that video. 
Mark, it's been absolutely fantastic um, talking to you today and uh, I wish you the best of luck for the series ahead. I shall be following with interest and uh, just like I say, thanks for, for all your input and uh, the best of luck for the year. Thank you for having us. It's been uh, great. And uh, yeah, we'll be out there trying to win the championships. Perfect. Best of luck. Thank you.